This is Snails and Oysters. You know what I realized? Uh, this is this is our third episode, and I I don't think that we've introduced ourselves uh, properly wow, at the beginning of any of these. That's hilarious. I love that. So I'll say I'm Nat Roberts. I'm Allie Rogers. And this is Snails and Oysters, the bisexual, bi-coastal, bi-weekly movie podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing, Allie? I'm doing good. I've been really social. Um, yeah, because I've been all vaccinated and it's been nice and the weather's really good. Although apparently we're getting a warning in Brooklyn until 10 p.m. of an ominous thunderstorm warning. Uh-oh. Did the National Weather Service call it ominous or was that color commentary? That was color commentary purely for <laughs> That was me interpreting what the National Weather Center was saying. I would love if uh, official pronouncements were a little more gothic in tone occasionally. I would also appreciate that. Yeah, like beware, beware of the the, the fast wind. <laughs> For so it is told that I-95 is backed up to the on-ramp. How are you doing? I'm good. I, um... I'm going through a little bit of a breakup over here, but I'm doing all right. I have uh, two friends in town uh, from New York who I'm spending plenty of time with. I still have to send you the book that I promised I would get you because of your breakup. <laughs> you you don't have to, but I would appreciate it. I am going to send it. Okay. I'm always looking for new things to read, especially science fiction. Um, but yeah, I'm doing well. Otherwise, I'm I'm actually, I just this morning, I saw the trailer for the new Edgar Wright movie, uh, mm-hmm. the documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Have you seen this? Ooh, no. No, no, no. It looks really interesting. I had never heard of the band Sparks before, which is a sign that I'm, you know, uncultured swine. But (laughs) I've been listening to them all morning. I've been listening to their album, uh, Kimono My House. And it's phenomenal. It's so, so good. I feel like I I just, I don't know, tapped into some alternate history because these guys should have been the biggest band in the world. Like, they're so talented. (laughs) Cool. When when does the documentary come out? And on what streaming platform might I stream it? (laughs) Uh, I have no idea because this this podcast isn't about promoting Edgar Wright's movies. <laughs> oh, I guess that's true. <laughs> we have our own Edgar. projects to promote, Allie. I'm not giving yeah. free airtime. If if Eddie uh, wants a spot, he can pay the the 15 cents per listen that everybody else pays. <laughs> I don't know if that's how much our advertisers pay. <laughs> I think if our podcast ever you know blows up, we should have like a filmmaker fund. Where we Aww. give a, we give grants to people, but only people who have like the most insane portrayals of bisexual people. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, I like that a lot. The the snails and oysters scholarship for bisexual film students. That that was a random thought I had, kind of my no, I love a, it. my undiagnosed ADD has been acting up. Do you have <laughs> ADD? I feel like everyone has it. Do you? Have no, it? I just have depression and anxiety. Well, 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 toot your little horn there. <laughs> If this was a mental health cast, we could get deeper into that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this is not a podcast about Edgar Wright. This is not a podcast about the Sparks Brothers. This is not a podcast about undiagnosed adult ADD. This is a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm vamping, Allie. I'm not trying to dismiss what you were saying, I promise. (laughs) No, no, I totally get it. That's really funny. Um, This this is a podcast about movies with bi folks in them. Yes, yes, yes. This week's episode is Some Like It Hot. Hell yeah. Especially bisexuals. (laughs) Yes. Bisexuals notoriously run cold, so we need we need warm rooms. I actually do think I run cold. I, I definitely don't. I definitely run hot. I do not like it hot. Some may like it hot, but I prefer cold rooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, what year was this movie made? Uh, I believe it was 1959. 1959. But to be sure, let's check the plot summary. You see that segue there? You I see love that, that segue? I love that segue. Sound Like It Hot is a 1959 screwball comedy directed by Billy Wilder, co-written by Wilder and IAL Diamond. It stars Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon as Joe and Jerry. 
down-on-their-luck jazz musicians who accidentally witness a mob shootout in Prohibition-era Chicago. To escape the mob, Joe and Jerry disguise themselves as women, Josephine and Daphne, and join an all-female jazz band en route to Florida. The lead singer of the band is Sugar Kane Kowalczyk, played by Marilyn Monroe. Joe falls in love with Sugar, because obviously, but she's had plenty of shitty relationships with saxophone players like him before. Now, she's set her sights on marrying a millionaire in hopes to find a suitable candidate in Florida. Which gives Joe an idea. Once the band arrives, Joe assumes a second disguise as Junior, allegedly the heir to the Shell Oil fortune. As Junior, he begins wooing Sugar. Or rather, she starts wooing him. Meanwhile, Jerry is faced with the advances of an actual millionaire, the unlucky love Osgood, played by Joe Brown. Joe encourages Jerry to date Osgood so that he can use Osgood's yacht to further his charade as Junior. This cozy state of affairs is interrupted when the gangsters hunting Joe and Jerry check into the same hotel completely by coincidence. Joe and Jerry break up with their respective lovers in order to make their escape, but in the process they not only witness another gangland killing, but Joe and Jerry reveal their true identities to Sugar and Osgood. In a madcap dash to escape the mob, Joe, Jerry, Sugar, and Osgood all end up on Osgood's yacht together, and the foursome happily sail off into the sunset. For a film made by your grandparents' generation, Some Like It Hot has more gender play and allusions to queer sexuality than you'd expect, even given the premise. And now, we discuss. <laughs> Let's discuss. Let's make like a Grecian statue and discuss. Oh boy. Oh god. Oh boy. Uh, I know you start every week, but I, I want you to start this week because this movie is new to you and it's it's old hat for me. So I want to hear what you think before I say what I think. Okay. Uh, it was such a treat. I loved it. It was like, it's so funny. I definitely had experienced like resistance to black and white movies. Interesting. Like when I first start watching them, there's something about it where I'm like, and is this fun? Which I feel bad about because I'm also a total like, film snob in a way but then i'm just kind of like black and white movies maybe don't put this in the podcast because it makes me sound uncultured uncultured <laughs> oh my god this is gonna be a running thing in this podcast <laughs> of you stating a perfectly normal opinion and then saying don't put that in the podcast well, it's just like, <laughs> i feel like i'm just constantly worried i sound like an asshole in every interaction i have <laughs> I mean, I am too, but, like, I, I'm leaning into it. I'm Cheryl yeah. Sandburn it, yeah. my assholery. I was yeah. excited, too, because my boyfriend notoriously says he just doesn't like old movies. That's something he said to yeah. me once. And if anything, that has been, like, I've been, like, what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how can you say that out loud? And so I put it on. He was, like, uh, I think I'll just, like, do something else but be in the same room. But the movie totally drew him in completely. And, like, it completely changed. He was like, I think when I said that, I think I just meant, like, that when I was a kid, they weren't interesting. But, like, that was really good. But, yeah, basically, with black and white movies, it just takes me longer to sink in. But once I'm in, I'm so happy. Because I, especially with these older movies, I just feel like the scripts were so tight. So, like, fun and, like, funny and lots of, like, puns and, like, callbacks. Just, just, they just feel so complete, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it really feels like they weren't scared to sound written, you know? Like, they weren't scared to have double entendre and wordplay and things like that. Yeah. Whereas now I feel like people feel like you have to do a wink and a nod at that and it makes it less funny. It makes it less fun. Like, it's fine to heighten language. Totally. It's, it's fiction. Totally. They just feel really, yeah, like, playing with language. And there's such a, there feels like such a like, love of language there, you know? Absolutely. Especially with Billy Wilder, who wrote and who co-wrote and directed this one. Uh, Some Like It Hot. We should probably say the names of the movies more. Oh, God, yeah. This is Some Like It Hot. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um... <laughs> But no, like Billy Wilder, I mean, he's undisputed one of the greatest screenwriters of all time, which I realize like is a pretentious thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest, I couldn't tell you who he is or what else he's done. That's the crazy thing. He's one of those people where other screenwriters know and love and worship totally. at the altar of Billy Wilder. But like even like other people in the industry who just aren't 
specifically nerdy about black and white comedy, people who aren't nerds about that particular era of film don't know who he is at all, which it's not depressing to me. If anything, it, it makes me jealous that you get to see his movies for the first time. No, it felt really special and it felt like like as I was watching it, I got it kind of got this feeling of like I would watch everything that this guy wrote. Like it's just that enjoyable. There's just so much pure like pleasure in it, you know? And what's so strange is that he was so versatile. And so like when he's doing a comedy like Some Like It Hot, it's pure fun, pure joy. But then he also wrote so many great dramatic and cynical films like uh, Sunset Boulevard mm. and Double Indemnity, which are some of the like darkest depictions of human depravity from that era. Really? Yeah. But still with that sense of like empathy for even the worst of the characters. So it's he's he's a fascinating writer. I uh, we need to focus because I could do this entire <laughs> podcast about the apartment <laughs> if we're not careful. Okay, I'll keep you on track. But I'm so glad to hear that you liked it though. Is because I was worried that like like some of the elements. It's not that they haven't aged well. It's just that they're a portrait of the period yeah. and like can, you know. But I think I really enjoyed that. Like, I enjoyed so that so much of it was like, because also, when was it written? Like, I believe 19, let me double check, but I think it's 1959. Yeah, 1959. And it's set in like the late 20s. Right? Yeah, it's set in like Prohibition. Yeah, period. well, I just like found watching it really interesting because I was like, it's crazy that like, to me, the 50s doesn't feel terribly far away because it feels like part of my family's life. You know, like that's yeah. that's when my aunt grew up was like she was a teenager in the 50s, you know, um, mm. but like the late 20s feels impossibly far away. And there was something about the time period and realizing that this movie in the 50s that was writing about the 20s, they weren't looking back that far, really. And yet it feels like such a totally different world because of prohibition. And I just think because of like some of the advances in technology and stuff. That's interesting because like I I remember watching this in like high school when I first saw it and I didn't even think of it as a period piece. I was just like, oh, it's black and white. It's about prohibition. It was probably made in prohibition. Like I didn't mm. think about it at all. And so it's for me, it's the weird experience of being like, oh, this is someone who I look back on looking back. back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's like kind of like two degrees. Yeah, so it's as far back for them as Lady Bird is for us today. Like, it's a, it's recent memory, but right. it's not, like, a, it's not contemporary. So. Right, but I loved all the details, and I guess I kind of trust that they were somewhat accurate, you know, even though it wasn't, like, strictly, like, a period piece, but, like, I don't know, just, like, I loved the details of the train. Yeah. The train felt so different from any train I've ever been on. I mean, this isn't related to sexuality at all, but it's just like <laughs> that train. We'll get to the sexuality stuff. The train. train. Yeah, I don't know. I just really, really liked it. I really liked every part of it. <laughs> yeah. What I, I like that it's also sort of like in a tradition of Twelfth Night and As You Like It and uh, Victoria Victoria of gender bending comedy that isn't the the cross-dressing aspect isn't meant to make fun of anyone. It's just yeah. like... It's more about making fun of the norms themselves than the characters participating in it or people who don't fit those norms. Yeah, I I, I found that too because I was worried. I like looked up a little description before watching it and I was like, oh man, I hope this isn't mean, you know? Yeah, and it, no, totally. it's really not mean at all. And it's really like, if anything, it's just really goofy. And I don't feel like it's making fun of cross-dressers. I don't even think it makes fun of cross-dressers ever, really. No. Like, it kind of just makes fun of them as people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, it does. Like, do it's think... about Joe and Jerry specifically doing this ridiculous thing to get out of town. Right. But it's not ridiculous to cross-dress. It's ridiculous that these two hetero idiots are trying to cross-dress to save their necks. Yeah, that's what it felt like to me. And maybe I'm being overly generous because I liked the film, but it, it really didn't feel mean to me. And if anything, I felt like there were a lot of moments where, like, their cross-dressing was, like, leading them to realize that, like, women have to put up with a lot of bullshit, you know? Just, like, 
getting like touched inappropriately or like hit on inappropriately and like just having to like fend off this kind of like intense male bravado and energy yeah like the putting up with like the hotel steward who keeps hitting on tony curtis's character like even though he is very clearly not interested in him and being like where does he get the gall to talk to me like that yeah I think that's one of the strongest aspects of the film is that, like, especially Jerry's arc, Jack Lemon's character, mm-hmm. who goes from lasciviously drooling over every woman he sees to falling in love with a guy and, like, adopting a much more compassionate, nuanced persona for himself. Yeah, totally. And I thought Jack Lemon was so good. Comedy or drama, Jack Lemon is yeah. so good. He was like another element to the movie where I was like, I would watch anything written by this screenwriter and I would watch anything he was in. Just because like his energy, it just felt so up. Like, so, such high energy, but so focused and, like, so fun and engaging to watch. Like, ah, oh, man, I really just loved it. I also yeah. just, like, he could go from zero to 60 so easily. And he's so credible doing it. Like, it never feels like he's going for a laugh. It always feels like he's just desperate in the situation that he's in. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. God, you need, you need to watch The Apartment because Jack Lemmon stars in The Apartment and Billy Wilder wrote The Apartment. Oh, I mean, so- I'll just totally watch it, like any day now also marilyn monroe is so good she is she is so so good in this movie she's playing the character sugar cane but she's also playing the persona of marilyn monroe but they work together and neither of them are really her like biographically speaking but she's so good at like uh, i don't even know how to describe it like playing herself without ever falling into a caricature of herself. Yeah, it feels very meta and very playful. And she's just so, like, I don't think I'd ever really seen her in a movie full length. Like, I think I'd seen her in, like, clips. Obviously, I'd seen photos of her. But it's, like, watching her in a movie, I'm just like, the photos don't do her justice in a way. Absolutely not. Because she's so charismatic. Yeah, she, like, photos reduce her to, like, a postage stamp. Like a, 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 a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. But, like, her acting... It's just so vivacious, yeah, I think. Yeah. It's like, it's, it, you can't even describe it with, like, modern parlance. You have to go back to, like, oh, 1950s okay. words to describe her. I will say, I think you can just say she's such a babe. <laughs> she's so fun to watch. Like, she's such a babe. I don't know. She gets reduced so often in, like, cultural conversation to, like, the dumb blonde. And, like, of course, everybody, like, there's so much bullshit around her that it's hard to, like, watch Marilyn Monroe without watching Marilyn Monroe. But especially in this movie, she's so good at playing a character who's very, like, savvy. Like, she, she's like, I'm not very bright. Like, I know I'm not a genius. Like, I'm okay with that. I just want to have a good life. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, she's playing, like, a self-aware dumb blonde, which feels, like, kind of subversive and fun. Yeah. Maybe maybe subversive is too far, like, going too far, but they're, I don't know. I, I think that subversive is, like, the perfect word for this entire movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, given the strictures of the period that it was made in when like Twelfth Night could be banned from public schools and stuff like that to make a movie that is so queer coded (laughs) like openly queer coded throughout is really like bold and especially to do it without you know wagging a finger at it yeah and to do it very like it feels very subtle too like it's I, it's, it's I guess coded. it's, like, it's subtle explicit. and not subtle. I don't know. Like, there's something very not subtle about, like, you know, we made a movie about two men who, like, cross-dress and then, like, basically, like, fall in love. One falls in love with a man, one falls in love with a woman. But then at the same time, it's, like, I don't know. It's it's told through implication so much. It that That's absolutely true. What I love is that when Jerry, Jack Lemmon's character, says that he's going to marry Osgood... To, like Tony Curtis uh, as Joe, like he tries to talk him out of it, 
but none of his concerns are like, it's wrong or it's gross. It's like, there are laws against it. There are conventions against it. It's just not done. It's the strongest he comes in against it. Like, it's just not something that people do, not that they shouldn't do. Totally, totally. It's it's definitely, it doesn't become like moral, really. And given that this is in the Hays Code era, when like, it was legally mandated that any character who committed a crime be punished in the course of the film. Really? Like, yeah, like there were legal strictures around like, you know, how long a kiss could be. You know, if a man and a woman are sitting on a bed, three feet have to be on the floor all times. So to make a movie Dude, that was a that was a rule at boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah so in a period when like i love lucy couldn't say that lucy was pregnant she was indisposed to make a movie that is at the very least like heavily ambiguous in its portrayal of sexuality is really just you know kind of a triumph and ballsier than half the shit you see in movie theaters today i'm glad that you can bring like so much actual education and context to this because like you know you could tell me all the movies during this time had cross-dressing and i'd be like i believe you (laughs) (laughs) don't sell yourself short i i'm adding trivia for for context well trivia is important trivia is not trivial yeah Uh, that's good (laughs) that for some wordplay what do you think of um joe brown's character osgood let's talk about osgood for a minute because i i think that we can agree the two bisexual characters in this movie are jack lemon as jerry and then joe brown as osgood um so let's 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 take them in turns let's start with osgood though osgood at first i really didn't like him because he just so comes off as this scummy pushy guy that like in a way everyone knows but also i feel like in contemporary times it's tamped down but this just felt like full-on like this was chill like it was kind of chill to act like this i think in his first scene he like sexually harasses jack lemon in an elevator yeah yeah so then i found it really really funny that he kind of becomes the hero in the end you know taking them all to safety and i was really surprised by jack lemon being like, I'm going to marry him. That really took me by surprise. But I also felt like maybe in a way his really intense, like he says really early on, I had eight wives. Yeah. So you're kind of like, well, something's not working there. And then maybe you can read his like really intense pursual of Jack Lemmon's character as just like overcompensating. I, I could see that. I, I feel don't know. Like, I'm not convinced no, no, no. that's the reading. I, I think that that's a, a completely valid reading. I feel like, like he's, he's on screen so little that it's hard to stitch an arc into his scenes. Even though every time he shows up, it's so memorable, if only because Joe Brown has such a wide mouth. So like you yeah. never forget when you've seen him. It's um, so cartoony. He literally looks like a Looney Tune. My read has always been that, like, he's just so eager to love somebody. Mm. Even to the point of, like, like he needs to be told to stop. He needs to be told to calm down. And, like, n- that's not to excuse his creepiness. Like, he, he needs to learn boundaries. Yeah, yeah. But once Jack Lemon is, like, more assertive with him and is like, these are my boundaries, he's like, okay, that's fine. I still want to be with you. Yeah, um, yeah. You see that in the club scene where, like, Jack Lemon is, like, leading as they dance and Joe Brown's like, ah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, he's just totally fine with everything. And then that that last scene with them on the boat to me is, like, one of the greatest comedy scenes ever because it's unconditional love. Yeah. Like, Joe totally. Brown is like... Like, Jack Lemon is throwing everything he can think of at Joe Brown as a reason not to get married. And every single time, he doesn't even blink. He's just like, okay. You know, he's like, I've been living with a saxophone player for three years. I forgive you. I yeah. can have children. We'll adopt some. I'm a man. No one's perfect. Or not, not no one. Nobody's perfect. I have to get it right because that line. <laughs> it's so good. It's such a funny line. Just the idea that, like, being a man is in itself a fault. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's so much humor in that line, and that sequence is so good. Yeah, there's. It's just so funny and so sweet. Like I love that it's funny without punching down at all. Yeah, And, and it's not like full house kind of safe where it's like, oh, nobody gets hurt. It's it's this transgressive thing for him to be like, nobody's perfect. But it's also such a like loving, kind thing to be like, nobody's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And it feels like it's just such a sweet turnaround for that character, too. 
I don't know if it's character growth exactly, but it's kind of like, I feel like it's just showing you all sides of him. I don't know that he's actually changed that much. I don't know. Yeah. Or or if we're just getting to know him better. Exactly. And you're like, oh, he's both the dude who's like pushy and has boundary issues and the dude who's like, I don't care. I love you for you. Like, yeah. I Whatever you are, I love. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. And it's, you could read it either way. Um, I kind of like that idea. I hadn't thought of that before, that it's just that we're getting to know him better. Like, we're just seeing more of him, not that he is changing necessarily. Well, it could be It could be either. I like the idea mm. that he's changing, too, because I like the way he behaves in the first scene is pretty gross. True. But I think, yeah, I don't know. It could work either way. We just don't see that much of him, honestly. So yeah, it's hard to say. But he does come makes, in at pivotal yeah. moments. Yes. Yes. He he comes in at like he <laughs> like he's he's very crucial to the course of the plot without having much to do with how he's involved. Exactly, like, which is so funny. It's so funny. I felt like there was a lot in this film that like I don't know if you were a screenwriter today, you might get called out for like that would never happen or like you're just doing like a What's it called? Like a magical... Oh, uh, Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the way it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're able to ride away on the millionaire's boat. Or just the way that, like, when um, the other guy, what's his name? I'm so bad at names. Uh, Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis, when his character is dressed up as a millionaire on the beach, and then the beach ball just happens to get, like, thrown his way. I just felt like there was a lot of really beautiful stuff like that that just totally worked and was great. You know, it didn't seem corny or goofy. It was just like, this is the world of the film. And of course that would happen. Yeah, whatever will lead to the most ridiculous situation. Like, or the fact that the mobsters have their their lovers of Italian opera convention at the same hotel that they happen to be hiding out at. Ludicrous. But it's so funny, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know what's so funny is like in this movie that features these like cross-dressing men, I felt like if you could label any of it offensive, it's the portrayals of Italians. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they, they're literally such funny mob portrayals. And also at the beginning when they call, when that dude's name is Mozzarella. Yeah, they, they're they in a speakeasy called Mozzarella's Funeral Home. Yeah, and like I could not handle that. I thought that was so funny. And the fact that it's like the, the Italian mobsters versus the Irish cop is such a trope from like, totally, you know, yeah. you can you can even see it come up in like modern things like L.A. Noir, the video game has that, has a bit of that. And like to push it to that level of ridiculousness is really. It was so funny. And yeah, just the friends of the opera, that being the like front so funny. Funny. Just every line that comes, like, um, what's it, Spats Columbo is the main Columbo, monster, yeah. which is incredible on its own. And then all of his goons who are like seven feet tall and made out of driftwood, but they always say the like dumbest, funniest things. I know. Like down to like when they're in the bar in the first scene and like the cop smells their drink and one just goes, buttermilk. Yeah. <laughs> So funny. Also, I've never heard of anyone drinking buttermilk. That's yeah, something that I've disgusting. I've only ever known as like a baking ingredient. Let's talk more about uh, Jack Lemmon's character, Jerry, and how and and specifically his sexuality in the movie. So it's funny because it is like in the beginning of the movie, he is so obsessed with the women. Like when he gets on the train and he's like calling them all these like names related to food. Where I'm like, yeah. enough. <laughs> I know that that's the part that is the hardest to watch today i feel like when he's being like you know pastry and butter and things and yeah it's, like, it's just oh. like please stop it. and like you're meant to groan at it but these days it feels even worse than it would have at the time yeah it, yeah it feels weird it's like weirdly both like too wholesome and extremely gross like <laughs> it's like yeah. just say you want some pussy dude like enough <laughs> enough um yeah, I just thought his character arc was so funny. And honestly, I found it really unexpected, but also just kind of endearing because he just kind of gets used to being a woman in a way. I feel yeah, like he like, starts to enjoy it and like really inhabit it in a very like sweet way. And you're just like, yeah, dude. And then like, it seems like I didn't totally understand them falling in love because I felt like during all the tango scenes, 
his character seemed grumpy. But then again, so like Joe Brown does too, because like they're dancing all night, so they both look a little frazzled. Totally, yeah. But then when he's like, oh yeah, like I'm gonna marry this guy, and he's like so into it, and this is this is like I feel like one of the best scenes that shows his like comedic hyperness, but also concentratedness, where he's like with the maracas and like yeah, when he's like lying on the bed playing the maracas. Yeah, it's so funny and so like cute. Like it's really honestly endearing because you're like, oh, this is kind of how people feel when they meet someone they really like. Like, but also yeah. it's so goofy given the context, you know? Yeah, exactly, and like the fact that they're in love isn't made fun of it's the situation around the fact that is like that they're on the run from the mob that he's pretending to be a different gender all of this stuff on top of it is the comedy part yeah and I was really like happy with how that scene unfolded because I think I expected him to snap out of it and then feel shame or have his friend be like you're not a queer you know yeah but like it's nice because he doesn't really snap out of it he just kind of towards the end is like oh I'm a boy but he's not he doesn't ever experience any like weirdness or shame he's more just like how do i make this work almost it feels logistical absolutely like it feels more like a you're right scene rather than a oh god what have i been doing which it would like you know there are comedies today that would do that sort of broad you know I'm, i'm thinking of like the adam sandler school of comedy not to diss what anybody else likes but yeah but like that scene plays out so nicely because there's even the moment when they're packing up and like tony curtis has his moment of like he finds the hat that he wears as the millionaire and he thinks about it he's like ah so sad and he puts it away and then like jack lemon finds the maracas and he's like he like plays them once and he's like ugh, but no i can't so he puts them away and it's like treated the same pretty much like both their broken hearts are treated the same in that scene even just like when he's talking about like oh i have to give the bracelet back you know like there's it's it's just really sweet there's just so much so much sweetness in this film. I actually like found his love story sweeter than uh, what's his name? Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis. I because I actually like that was the that was actually the love story that gave me the most anxiety. I found his like lying to her. I was like, this really stresses me out and feels bad. And then it was only in the end when like she realizes what's been going on and she isn't upset that I'm like, whew, okay. Yeah, I get that for sure. Similar to last week's movie, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I always get really stressed when like a love story involves some sort of contrived lie that one is telling to the other. Like it freaks me out and it makes me uncomfortable. But I always enjoy it more when the lie isn't the focus, you know? Like, what balances it out is that Marilyn Monroe doesn't care in the end. She's like, whatever. Yeah, (laughs) and that I feel like that, her realizing that is so tied up in him kissing her as Josephine. Yeah, Yeah, that she sort of, like, coalesces him into one person. Mm -hmm. Like, she's seen him as Josephine, the saxophone player, but, like, removed from her sexual preferences Mm -hmm. but then she sees him as you know junior the millionaire who like very much is in her wheelhouse of sexual preferences but then like that moment when he kisses her on stage dressed as a woman but like still just so in love with her that he can't leave without saying goodbye then like suddenly he's one person and she loves that person yeah and And um, it's funny because as she as that happens it is kind of two different sets of like lies coming together so it's yeah. it's kind of funny, but it's almost like she is just there. Yeah, it doesn't matter because she like somehow is like I know his true essence as being one of the shitty saxophone players I usually date. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but one who's like learned his lesson yeah, without yeah. having to put her through hell. Totally, exactly. And like who who tries to talk her out of dating him because he's a saxophone player. That to me was the redeeming quality of his when he yeah. tries to talk her out of it. I was like, okay. <laughs> And it also helps that, like, the second thing I was going to mention is it, it helps that she's kind of lying to him, too, when he's when he's Junior the Millionaire, that she is pretending to be rich, too, when she's talking to him. Totally, yeah. Pretending to be part of that jet-setting set. Jet-setting set? Um, she, she is also lying to him, which doesn't make it better, but, like... No, you're right. They're kind of playing each other. And that part, to me, was really funny because I went to Bryn Mawr. And so I was like, wow. I thought that that was a made-up school. No, no. It's um, it's one of the seven sisters and very much not a made-up school. But yeah, it definitely used to have 
I mean, it has a good reputation now for sure, but it used to have a reputation specifically of like well-to-do. You had to kind of be rich to go there and you had to be white for a long time. And you mostly had to be Christian for most of the time. <laughs> like you had to be a wasp. Like, yeah, I was about to say, it's a, it's a wasp academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But a, but a great school that I love. Um, that, that has its past faults. Listen, um, I went to NYU. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> our, our present is our fault. <laughs> Dude, I feel bad for all the Tish kids who are trying to like not pay tuition. Yeah, they, the, they got more screwed over than most of us do. But that's, that's another podcast. <laughs> it truly is. Um... What were we talking about? You were trying to make a point, and I interrupted you. you oh, were I don't know. Making a point about Marilyn Monroe's character. Oh no, I think I think I made it. Just that, like, it, it is sort of like a love's labor's lost kind of, you know, flirting through masks and or like Serrano de Bergerac, like in that tradition of. That's like, such a trope. That's such a yeah. like. And it's funny because I think it is true a little bit. I think it's like a heightened version of, of what people that's true. do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it is like a heightened version of that whole thing of like first date. You yeah. pretend to be a better version of yourself. Exactly. It's such a fun, it's, it's such an absolutely delightful trope. And if that yeah. ever happened to a friend of mine, I would be like, that is psychotic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I adore well, yeah. it. I adore it in the theater. <laughs> Exactly. And one more reason that we shouldn't try to take moral lessons, like direct moral lessons from fiction. Yes. Yes. It's fiction for a reason. Yeah. Um, again, like everything in this movie feels like it's about these characters. Like it doesn't feel like generalizable. But one thing is that that it doesn't really bother me, but it is something I wish was better is that Jack Lemon's character and Joe Brown's character as bisexuals are kind of ravenous in a sense totally totally yeah 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 like and it's it's nice that it's separated from their sexuality a bit like them being bi and them being really libidinous is never like conflated but it is a thing that of the characters in the movie they're the most interested in sex and they're the two bisexuals which is not great uh because it does play into like the trope of bisexual men having like really overpowering sexual urges right totally just being like bisexual out of pure necessity yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) like i just have too much horny for any one gender to control it yeah totally which is not great but again it it doesn't feel like they're conflating it because the bisexuality is so coded it almost feels like it's there just to set up the contrast you know like it feels like Jerry is drooling over women in the beginning so that it's more pronounced when he falls in love with a man at the end. And the same with Joe Brown on a shorter arc. Mm-hmm. Um, because neither of them is, like, drooling over men. You know, it's not like yeah. Jack Lemmon falls in love with Osgood because he's so handsome. Right. <laughs> but it is it is there. And I have to bring it up because, like, if we, if we went a full hour just singing the praises of this movie... No, like, that's a good we, point. We have to introduce some drama to this. No, you're <laughs> totally right. You're right. We're going to have to, like, hate a movie eventually. We haven't hated a movie yet. I know! Like, I mean, Ripley is the closest I've gotten. But <clears throat> in a sense of, like, I love it, but it's so problematic. It's bad for the... For the, <laughs> for the community. The community, yeah. Yeah. For the bi canon, we can't go a week without mentioning the bi canon. I think that's honestly, important too. I think if I were to have any quibble with it, yeah. it would be like going into the film. I kind of thought that Marilyn would have feelings for Josephine as a woman. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I guess it, maybe that would have just been really crossing some kind of cultural line to introduce that subplot but that was what I assumed I was like oh it's gonna be this kind of oh wow I feel confused feelings for this woman and then it's gonna be like surprise I'm a man but instead it wasn't I don't know it it sort of feels like they introduce the millionaire disguise so that Tony Curtis can court Marilyn Monroe without doing it as a woman maybe yeah totally but that part feels a little like extra even though it's like an essential part of the film and it's so funny but I did I was very shocked that they had the kiss between Josephine and Marilyn at the end that's so public and I was really actually bracing for some kind of anger or like something bad to happen and then 
it was just all good. And I was like, whew. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really is like a big tension release that Josephine declares her feelings for Marilyn so publicly. But then, like, the worst that happens is the band leader gets upset for one shot, and then they move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's really nice to have a queer-coded film that is so separate from shame and judgment. Like, totally. there is so little shame and so little judgment in this movie, just as a whole. And even, even stories that are pro-queer sometimes, I feel like, can get bogged down in those feelings. And, and it's important to deal with those, because that's very much part of the reality. But it is also nice to have the escapist version where those things don't exist. Yeah, you're right. It feels really like escapist and really like a relief and subversive in a really fun way, you know? Yeah, and I always, um, whenever the term escapism comes up in the conversation, I think of this Ursula K. Le Guin quote. Um, yes, love. We love. But she says that um, it's something along the lines of like fantasy and science fiction, which I write, are often called escapist. Uh, but since escape is generally in the direction of freedom, I've never minded. I love that. She's so great. Wow. She's so great. Ugh. So good. But yeah, and I think that this movie really shows how that works. Like, it is escapist, but in in a, in, a, in the direction of freedom, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And I, I think that if you generalize that, you can find it throughout Billy Wilder's movies, that he is one of the least judgmental writers out there. Mm. Um, that, like, you know, all of his characters do despicable things. Like, really, like, like Double Indemnity, his protagonist is a murderer and an adulterer. In Sunset Boulevard, Norma Desmond is like an egotistical monster by the end. And Joe wow. Gillis is a gigolo. And the apartment, even, the main love interest is having an affair with a married man. And the main character is letting his bosses have affairs at his apartment. Wow. They're all terrible, but they're all wonderful and loved and loving people. Mm. And it feels like he's he's never judging them for their decisions he's always just trying to contextualize them oh you make me want to watch like every single one of his movies immediately uh that's my goal i'm there yes and i and it's it's funny because it's like there there are great writers i love who are incredibly judgmental but that's part of the point like jonathan swift incredibly judgmental but you can't write gulliver's travels without being judgmental <laughs> or like jane austen such a judgmental writer, but so good at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it is also nice to see someone like Billy Wilder who is just like, nah, you know. Yeah. Hey, uh, God, I'm going to cut this from the podcast, but <laughs> um, it does remind me of the, the one bit of Latin that I know is um, mm -hmm. Omo sum, uh, Omo sum, Umani nihil ame alienum puto, uh, which comes from the playwright Terence, and it means I am human. And I think nothing human is alien to me. Mm, I like that. Wow. Matt, you're so cultured. You're so cultured. <laughs> I'm cutting all of this out of the podcast. No, you have to rant about Jane film. Austen. I love it. Um, <laughs> crazy. I love that the mob story even comes back. I did not see that coming at all. I was like, the mob yes. is gone now. The mob was setting up the beginning of the film. Then they come back. We suddenly are sucked into this entire storyline of the mob and feeling empathy. Like I was feeling literal empathy of being like, it's sad that like that toothpick guy died because he was clearly this dude's friend and choir mate. Like, and then like all of a sudden this, the look on this guy's face as he realizes something's up with that birthday cake. And then he's yeah. like that whole scene. I was just like, what? Like, we are doing a whole other movie now but it totally works and i loved it it's crazy how well it works like it shouldn't work at all that like there's like these mob story parentheses around the movie they feel completely separate from what the movie is about but they still like work <laughs> like there's like real drama and tension in the scene when like spats colombo is about to be killed even yes. though his name is spats colombo this is ridiculous yeah and he's about to be killed with the birthday cake essentially I like no yeah it's so good one thing i want to call out that i caught this time that i hadn't before is like when they're putting for context for the viewer it's a birthday cake that normally, like, you know, it's one of those big birthday cakes that, like, a stripper would pop out of or something. But instead, it's a man with a Tommy gun who's going to pop out and kill somebody. But uh, when they're putting the guy with the gun into the cake, <laughs> the guy who's, like, putting the thing on top says, Try not to ruin the cake. I promised my kid I'd bring a slice back. So 
so good. Such a banal comment. Before you go to like murder five people. And also like, did he tell the kid what was going to happen with the cake? Like what's happening? Also, which part of it is a real cake? (laughs) I know. To me, it looked completely fake. Oh man. All right. Let's play a game of marry, fuck, kill, and then head out. Okay. Obviously need to marry Marilyn Monroe. If if she's in the running, wait. Let's pick our three. <laughs> okay, sorry, Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. I mean, let's. I mean, we could just do the three main characters: Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis, and Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Okay, you do yours. Or yeah. Okay, I would marry Marilyn Monroe. Fuck Tony Curtis, and I guess I'd have to kill Jack Lemmon. But I feel I would feel really bad about it. I, I think I'm gonna go. Marry Jack Lemmon. Fuck Marilyn Monroe and then kill Tony Curtis by default. I respect that. I respect that. No, that. I feel like Jack Lemmon would be a great spouse. Like he's fun and he'd cheer me up when I'm feeling shitty. He seems really sweet. He seems really cute with the maracas. So I think he would be. He would be a good spouse, absolutely. Yeah, which leaves fucking kill. And when. But we're talking about their actual. We're talking about the characters. The characters, yeah, not not the people. I would marry Sugar. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I could see that. I don't know. I feel I don't like know. Sugar and I would run out of things to talk about because I don't know much about music. Mm. But she is like this would not be like a like quick and dirty one night stand. I would take her out for a lovely dinner. Don't know. I don't need details, Matt. I don't need details. <laughs> you keep your dirty fantasy to yourself. <laughs> but no, I would marry Jack Lemon. Uh, I think then... that's cute. Yeah. I think you guys would be actually a cute couple. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Plus, you know, Tony Curtis, he's a gambler. You can't trust him with your money. No, he's like definitely like he's definitely grown as a character by the end of the movie, but he's got a long way to go. <laughs> yes. He's got a long way to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I respect your choices, though. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> not that you need my approval. <laughs> I just like sugar. Like, I want to give her a yacht. I'm not a millionaire, so I have to work on that. <laughs> Working on that. True. But, you know, it's good that you want to give her nice things. Yeah. It seems like like gifts are definitely her love language. I think so, yeah. That and physical touch. Real quick before we go, can we talk about how fucking sexy that scene on the boat is? It was so sexy. I felt, like, I felt like actually just like, whoa. Yeah, like it's hilarious, but it's also two of the most attractive humans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like really kissing and like long shots of kissing. And I was really like... They really mean it. <laughs> um, or it felt like it. it was great. It was so sexy. And I just yeah. I just tried watching normal people, which also I, I think that. is supposed to be very sexy. But for me, it just made me uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> it's much more like graphic. And I oh, think yeah. I think sometimes there's a point at which like premium filmmaking tries to do a sex scene where I'm like, this is just porn kind of. Like, like, it's nice. You, like, shot it on an Alexa. You used, like, nice lenses. I appreciate that. Like, I understand that. But, like, I think it was just interesting having, like, watched, like, this very contemporary series that's supposed to be really, really sexy and is also pretty explicit. And then watching this, what is just kissing and being like, whoa, that was, like that blew me away on the sexiness scale like yeah like it it is kind of funny how within those limitations black and white movies haze code era can still be like horny as hell yes so horny (laughs) just like the the lighting and the situation and like the the dinner and the wine and it's so classy and elegant and like like, their banter as they're kissing is so, like, next-level, like, wordplay. Like, uh, I think, what's the joke? But also the whole premise is so goofy. Like, just, like, so the way this guy does, like, lies upon lies. Like, not only am I a millionaire, but I suffered a traumatic romantic incident and now cannot be turned on. And I know. But you can try to turn me on if you want. I was like, what a fucking dude. I know. And and it's it's funny because there's there's another level of queer coding there that like he talks about it himself where it's it almost at first sounds like he's trying to tell her that he's gay. Yes, it totally totally does. But yeah. then it's more of like an asexual thing. But it's it's not, and it's ugh, it becomes it becomes like a trauma thing. thing. Yeah, it's yeah. 
it's really but it's all just so heightened and ludicrous yeah you're just like what the heck like i know and it's such like third dimensional chess to be like i'm going to seduce you by convincing you to seduce me yeah total third level chess so funny i would i would rank it up there with like out of sights sex scene for like movie sexiness without just being like graphic peen and vagina yeah i haven't seen that oh it's really good i'm not trying to be <laughs> prude like i'm like yes you can definitely also be very explicit and it can be sexy but it doesn't being explicit doesn't always equal sexiness but i don't know you know no i no i think you're really onto something there implication is sexier yeah 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 totally well like look at something like um like forgetting Sarah Marshall, like the the sex scenes in those are hilarious, even yeah. if they're explicit. And part of the humor comes from the explicitness, or like bridesmaids, you yeah, know, stuff like exactly. that. I feel like when you're doing a sex scene in a movie, you have to capture how sex feels for one of the participants because if you just show it, it's hilarious. It <laughs> yeah, is totally. two naked bodies mushing against each other in ways that they were not built to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, except that they were. Except they, they were. Yeah, true. <laughs> Uh, all right. Any last thoughts? Just a great film. I think more people should watch this film. I agree. It's great because it's a classic, but it's not stuffy. Yeah. Really fresh. Really alive. My my last thought for this is I love that when Tony Curtis is pretending to be a millionaire, he does like a very broad Cary Grant impression. <laughs> And like, oh my god, the weirdest accent of all time. And then like Jack Levitt calls him out. And he's like, nobody talks like that. <laughs> What is our next? Yes. We should do a, a lady next. Do you want to do Barbarella or Thor Ragnarok? Hmm, what's Barbarella? I don't know much about it other than that there is a bisexual in it. Uh, it's like, it's some kind of 1960s counterculture sci-fi um, about like a future where no one has sex, but everyone has sex. Okay, I want to do that. that was all easy. right, we'll do Barbarella next. I've heard it's I've heard it's garbage, so we may finally have a movie that we hate. I love it. I'm glad. Need variety. We're definitely being exactly. too kind. Yes. Though to be fair, like we've chosen some pretty good movies so far. Yeah. We we need to get into some like insulting portrayals at <laughs> some point. Yeah, no. We need to right. we need to roast. <laughs> yes. And we need to we need to get our feelings hurt and get angry. Yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So see you then. Yeah, see you soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Snails and Oysters, created by Nat Roberts and Allie Rogers, with music by Billy Libby and artwork by Abby Austin. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And if you don't like this podcast, I don't know, share it with your enemies?